Welcome to Great Minds, and our guest today is Esther Mariah Tejeda. Esther Mariah is a native of the Bronx, and we had a little fun talking about our New York City shared upbringing in different boroughs, but we'll come back to that, I'm sure. Uh, she is the chief marketing officer of a company that is literally leading and living digital transformation in real time, anywhere, real estate, Inc., Really interesting company. Esther is the first person of her skill set to have the position that she has at the company. And it is a really interesting business, a global leader in residential real estate across a number of categories. They uh, uh, are leading some of the most recognizable brands in the business. And it's a pleasure to have you on Great Minds. So welcome. Well, thank you for having me. I'm very, very excited for this conversation. This is one of my top favorite podcasts. I should let you know that in advance. Oh my goodness. So th <laughs> this can only go south. We should oh, no. <laughs> conclude the interview immediately. Uh, so Esther, uh, you know, I was going to start going back to remembrances of your early days uh, working on a piece of business that wouldn't exist anymore in the same way, which was a tobacco client back at Ogilvy and Mather. Uh, oh goodness! I, I also worked back in the crates. <laughs> I also worked on some tobacco business. I have a great Philip Morris story about Marlboro and Marlboro Racing to tell you if we get to it. But given where we started before we uh, got on the air, talking about Washington Heights, talking about the Bronx, I also grew up in the city. Uh, my uh, my aunt had a drugstore. And my uncle Harry, my aunt Eleanor, and Uncle Harry—let's name them—had a drugstore in Washington Heights that I have very fond memories of going to. And we just went to a wedding there recently. There's a new hotel just off the Cross Bronx. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, and the A Loft. Yeah. So we went to a wedding there. We stayed there for the weekend. And I think I messed it up, but the parking lot that was right there was full and evidently there were other ones, but I, I blew it and I ended up parking like 10 blocks away. And so I got to walk through the neighborhood, which actually was actually a blessing both to, you know, uh, to walk back to the wedding and then the next morning to get the car. And I was reminded about what a magical, wonderful place that community is stronghold of Dominican, New York, a huge part of what makes New York, you know, what it is. So I'd love to talk about remembrances of Washington Heights and how that unique part of New York really helped shape you. Oh my God. I mean, you're hitting right at the heart from the very beginning of this conversation. So I am such a proud Washington Heights, you know, child of Washington Heights. I, I did, I was born in the Bronx. I spent the first six or seven years in the Marble Hill, Riverdale area. And then we moved down to Washington Heights, which at the time was really becoming this stronghold Dominican-American, Dominican immigrant community. And my family was very much part of sort of the community fabric and very involved on the business side of things, entrepreneurial spirit, all of those things. And um, it was such a colorful, deeply emotive, uh, kind of really high sense experience. So for example, my bedroom was right on Broadway. So, I mean, I heard cars and 
taxis and horns all night. It was kind of the soundtrack of life. But what made it, I think, especially dynamic and really educational for me was just the fluidity of having to navigate through so many different cultural experiences, kinds of people from all walks of life, uh, the new community that was forming versus the community that had been there previously, the 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 melding of these all of these worlds. Interestingly, um, the part of Washington Heights where I grew up had a pretty significant Jewish community embedded within. In fact, our our downstairs neighbor was a rabbi, and so we would hear all he would gather people for prayer, and we would hear all of the prayers from the kitchen window. And so I was kind of picking up on the prayers and I could sing along to a lot of them during uh, big holy days. And then, the, you know, the neighbor next door had just gotten into the country from the Dominican Republic. The, the woman down the hall was from Cuba. So you're really just navigating all of these different personalities, experiences, perspectives, cultures, foods, um, you know, human behaviors, experiences and sort of views of the world in any given 24 hours. And I think uh, I'm blessed and fortunate to have had that growing up, that much diversity around me, diversity of thought, primarily diversity of opinion, um, because it really made me such a flexible thinking person. And it, it helped me to understand the, the importance of empathizing with other people's point of view to understand their behavior even if that behavior seems unreasonable, inexplicable to me, that person almost always has a pretty reasonable explanation from their point of view. And that's sort of the big takeaway that I that I got from my childhood. Well, it's a tremendous takeaway. And, you know, lost in the conversation today about what certainly seems to be a crisis in our country, in our big cities in particular, with what's happening with the inflow of people who are looking for a better place to live. That's what's at the heart of all the people that come to America, right? They're looking to improve their lot. And a lot of those people have become demonized. And this has been a conversation to some degree about money. Who's going to pay for all these people? Mayor Adams and our governor here are yelling at the federal government. The federal government is pushing the ball back to the city and state governments. But lost in that conversation is that America, the definition of America is everybody here comes from somewhere else. And many of those neighborhoods, like what you described in Washington Heights, uh, was a jambalaya of people from all over the world. And we look at the history of immigration in New York. You know, last year, advertising week was in the Lower East Side. And this year we'll be back in Midtown. But I, I must tell you, Esther, I loved that we were in the oldest part of New York, which now has very Hispanic dominance down there in terms of who lives down in the Lower East Side around Delancey and Essex. But way back when was the Irish and the Italians and the Jews living in those tenement houses. And we actually took our team to the Henry Street Settlement House, which is still there. And that was a place where when immigrants first came through Ellis Island, my grandfather was one of them, the Henry Street Settlement House helped them settle in New York and uh, still helping people today. But that magic that you talked about, that's what's, you know, the real magic of 
what America has always been. And, and it's saddening uh, to me as uh, someone who cares about people and has a lot of, I guess the modern word is empathy, that all these people are being demonized today. Well, you're, you're certainly preaching to the choir on that. Um, you know, for me, the, the diversity of my experience has been nothing but a tremendous value uh, to me personally, right? And my ability to navigate life and, you know, deal with and interact with all kinds of people, regardless of situation, context, and et cetera. Honestly, also a tremendous benefit in my professional life and my career and in the thing that I do as a marketer. And I, you know, I, I'm a very loud and proud New York City native. I think New York City is one of the most magical and fantastic places on earth. There really is no other place like it. And the reason for that is, again, just how much, how many different human experiences you can interact with on in any given 24 hour period. And just the richness of that in your own personal growth and the richness of all of that coming together. It's, it's like, it's like no other. And I, and I, I, I hope to see um, more folks embrace uh, the beauty of that fabric and for us uh, to be able to move forward as a community um, with that same spirit that we've always had, you know, from really the beginning of, of the USA and certainly the beginning of New York City um, in, in, in our core, because that is what this is all about. I think we uh, see things quite similarly. Okay, so let's let's shift a little bit and 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 start to talk a little business. Go back to those early days, which we referenced earlier at Ogilvy and Mather, a great great shop, still around today. And I can't say the same of other legendary shops like J. Walter Thompson and so many others that have sort of bitten the dust along the way. But I'm going to guess that Ogilvy was an awfully great training ground for you as a pretty young person just starting out in the business. It was. Um, and I um, I accidentally fell into it, if I'm honest. Uh, I didn't really plan or set out to work in advertising. I, I, did, I was in the advertising um, world in my first sort of stint in marketing. And um, I learned so much there about again context switching and fluidity so my 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 client was british american tobacco i mean we're going way back in the crazes like turn of the century type stuff but um my client was british american tobacco and there you know at the time were tremendous regulations around what tobacco could and could not do from an advertising perspective from a marketing perspective more broadly and so it was the best possible introductory experience because there was nothing off the shelf that we could do. Every single thing had to be really nuanced, especially creative, uh, you know, just really working around all of the rules and regulations to land on things that were appropriate within the guidelines, following the law, but also compelling and creative and interesting for the target audience. So it really required all of us to stretch our thinking way beyond the obvious, way beyond what other clients were doing and were able to do in, in different industries and be so scrappy 
about how we approached the advertising and the creative and the content model. And I would also say really truly understand who the audience was for this product, because the one thing we didn't want to do was market to all. So it, it got us really, really disciplined on marketing to really specific segments. And that's where I started to understand the importance of knowing your consumer. Yeah, I think it's just probably heresy what I'm saying, but uh, folks that worked on tobacco related brands, you know, going back, you know, to the heyday of it in the 50s and 60s, that was a great training ground. Mm -hmm. And I also was involved uh, towards the waning days of all tobacco advertising and sponsorship for Marlboro Racing and worked for a woman named Ellen Merlo, who was a legend at Philip Morris. She was the one who oversaw all the budgets for all their marketing, including Marlboro Racing, which was huge, um, Benson and Hedges, which was a huge, a huge brand in music, oh, sure, and, yeah. and Virginia mm -hmm. Slims, which sponsored the women's tennis tour. That was the mm -hmm. Virginia Slims tour. And when you talk about, you know, legends like Chris Everett and Martina Navratilova and so many others, they revered and loved Virginia Slims because before that there was no money in women's professional tennis. So it really was a great training ground, uh, putting the morality issue aside, if you can, <laughs> it, uh, you really uh, cut your teeth if you were working on a tobacco brand. I, I agree. I agree. And what's interesting is I went from tobacco to alcohol beverage. So I went from one vice to another, but again, in that same vein of how do we think outside the box? Because what everyone else is doing does not apply here. And so um, a lot of stretched thinking and a lot of, uh, I think, uh, dependency on really amazing creative, which again, rooted in deep, deep understanding of what were we trying to accomplish. And so that structure, that discipline, that focus um, I don't think you have that in, you know, less regulated industries like, you know, CPG or or just about anywhere else. So I, I do think it was a great place, a great way to launch into what is now what is, has now been a 20 plus year you know, career in the business of of marketing. And um, and I'm grateful for it. Actually, it was like I said, it was completely not intentional. It was something I. I landed in after realizing there was no way I was going to go to law school. And so it really changed the trajectory of my life. And here we are today having a conversation about it. Uh, I love it. My, my career also goes back to a linchpin moment when I realized I was not going to law school. Uh... <laughs> So you referenced the liquor business. You had a great tenure at Diageo and then at Sovereign. And you also moved into the then uh, baby field of what is today called experiential marketing. Uh, talk about that evolution in, just in terms of your skill set and some remembrances of those days uh, working for some pretty big brands, Captain Morgan and Johnny Walker and Red Stripe and so many others. Yeah, so I started out on the agency side working for Pernod Ricard brands, um, Stoli, Stoli Vodka, Chivas Regal Whiskey, and then ended up at Diageo working on some of the brands that you mentioned in the experiential marketing, you know, bring things to life realm of, of this discipline. And it was a natural evolution for me 
And I'm going to tell you a funny story that has nothing to do with my career, but ended up having everything to do with my career. I was, like I said, originally planning to go to law school. I took a gap year between college and, you know, getting serious about law school. I got a job as an analyst on standard at standard and Poor's on wall street, because that's what everyone else was doing. And it felt like, okay. And so every day I was going down to wall street wearing, you know, the button downs and the trousers and following the very strict kind of white shoe firm financial protocol. And I was so miserable. I was so unhappy and I know it sounds ridiculous, but actually the dress code, which was emblematic of the whole culture, felt so oppressive to me <laughs> that I was like, there's no way I can do this. This is not the person that I am. These clothes feel like a costume. This entire thing feels like a costume. The whole 8.30 in the morning be in the office thing feels unnatural to me. And so I started to throw events on the side as a way of making additional money. You know, I've always been entrepreneurial. You know, like I said, my parents are entrepreneurs in the Dominican community. I'm always looking for the business opportunity and everything. I had a lot of friends. Um, I was known to go to a lot of parties, you know, on weekends and, and so on. Folks were calling me all the time to ask me what was good. Where should we go tonight? What's the hot party? And I was always kind of funneling people to one place or another. And I realized there's there's a business model in here somewhere. And so I started to throw events on the side, kind of targeting my, my audience of peers that had recently graduated from college with me or I knew from college or otherwise, and that sort of grew. And I started to do these events, eventually realized I'm not going to law school. This is not the life that I want to live. I much more enjoy being in a business that allows me to interact and understand the things that motivate people. And I was getting really, really kind of good at being able to figure out what made a person choose a particular event, how they wanted to feel when they got to the club, like setting up the VIP experience and how, how much more money you could make if people really felt like they were getting the VIP experience. So that ended up with me landing this role at Ogilvy in the advertising world, um, which was an extension of that. And then I kind of just took those skills from all these parties, club nights that I was hosting on, on Saturdays and said, I can make this more of a corporate day gig and tack on to my experience in advertising and move into experiential. And that's when, you know, this whole fusion of like my personal life and my professional life really started to, to come together. And we were doing really interesting pop-up events sponsored events, um, endorsement type activations on all of the alcohol beverage brands that, that we just talked about and really thinking about how does this brand come to life? How do I bring something like the Johnny Walker experience to a consumer in a way that really feels like Johnny Walker? First, I need to understand what is the Johnny Walker brand and experience. So let's get really smart about understanding our brands. Who are the consumers? And then what is what is a five sense experience look like that's going to make this person walk away from this event, from this tasting, from this pop-up store, from this, you know, whatever the, the, the vehicle is, really feeling like they've been immersed 
in the world of Johnny Walker and they love it more as a result of it. And so another interesting, deeply satisfying mental challenge of bringing something to life that has really been a two-dimensional object and making it feel human, making it or giving it human characteristics and making it not just human and have human characteristics, but the kind of human that our audience, our consumers would like to be friends with. And that's how I started to think about brand and, and marketing um, and all of the work that I, that I still do to this day. It's very much rooted in that you know, that like it has to tie back to building and giving a realistic and authentic human experience to other human beings. I, I, I love it. So your, your answer prompts a question. At Anywhere Real Estate, you are immersed in the modern world of looking at marketing strategy, looking at performance and lead gen, you're in that digital analytics world. You're deep in that swimming pool. You were doing analytics and looking at audience, you know, going back to what we were talking about earlier at, at, uh, at Ogilvy for BAT, for the Diageo brands and your own enterprises, looking at audience and identifying a need and a gap that you could fill. But analytics then meant something very different than what analytics means today. Talk about the evolution of that uh, and your journey, you know, because you've always been sort of, you know, finding a way to connect with an audience. Today, the toolkit's a little bit different than it was 20 years ago, you know, when you're, you know, putting together social gatherings in Washington Heights. Mm -hmm. So yes and no, I would say. To, to how different it is. I think that the toolkit that we have today is still not fully there um, and still does not account in a really holistic way for that 360 degree person that you're trying to understand and relate to and ultimately sell something to. Um, the root of all of this has never and will never change, right? The root of being a marketer has always and will always be uh, connecting human experiences at a large scale. Whether the vehicle for that is an ad, the vehicle for that is an experience, a pop-up shop, an event, whether it is um, an online experience, that is what changes. But the fundamental purpose and reason that we do the thing that we do is to drive that connection any, any which way that is appropriate. And because humans keep evolving, society keeps evolving, culture keeps evolving, you know, we have uh, so much digital disruption over the past decade and it's accelerating at pace. The way we understand how to make that connection is the piece that keeps on changing. So when I first got into this business, there was just a singular focus on demographics. And so you would really try to segment and understand your buyer, your consumer, your customer based on, you know, really tactical things, household income, level of education, gender, geographic location, et cetera. And we were making some really big leaps around how a person of any particular demographic set would behave, what they liked, what they didn't like. We were creating personas really based on these things, you know, 
then came psychographics, which we, you know, we still use, where we try to go beyond the demographics and really understand the behaviors of people. And we try to segment folks around likes and dislikes, um, preferences of, of different kinds. And we create personas that are, I think, more well-rounded than, than the demographics. But the question that we've been asking, certainly in my career, is the what of things. What does this consumer do? What does this consumer like? What does this consumer want? And I think what we should be asking and what we've been, I think, trying to get at asking, certainly in the past two decades that I've been in this business, is the why. So it's one thing to know what a consumer wants, what they, you know, want to engage with, what they behave like, but is a whole other level, a whole deeper dimension to really understand why those things are. And so, and this goes a lot back, it's interesting, we started with the whole Washington Heights piece, but this goes a lot back to that uh, upbringing and that need to understand all of these different people that just even lived in my building and why Mrs. Myers, who was the Holocaust survivor from Auschwitz who lived next door was so different from the rabbi who lived downstairs, who was so different from the Mrs. Diaz that lived next door and why they approached things. I mean, I could see what they were doing was different, but why was it so different was always the question that I was asking. And so what, I, what I'm really working on in today's age of, of, of marketing is uncovering that why thing. And for me, the why thing is, that there is unconscious human emotion right below the surface or sometimes a little bit deeper that is actually driving the reason that you like the things that you like, that is actually driving the choices and behavior that you are making. So you may dislike you know, purple and really love yellow, but it's not just because you do. There's some way that yellow makes you feel that is a feeling you crave to have, you need to have, you didn't get enough of as a child, and now you want to compensate for or otherwise. And so we're going to be smart and precise and really successful marketers. We need to understand that level of emotional profiles, those unconscious emotional profiles of the consumer, because those things, which I call the emographic of a person, the practice of emography is the next frontier from demographics to psychographics to emographics. And you can get a much more complete story of your consumer when you are understanding the uh, uh, unconscious motivators and drivers that are the why behind the what that lead to the thing, the behavior that you want to engage and leverage in order to drive the, the outcome that you want to drive as a marketer. Well, Esther, I, I love what you're building here and a bridge from literally the leading edge, both scientifically and pragmatically and from the heart of navigating modern day marketing analytics and understanding of people and building that bridge back to the apartment building in Washington Heights you know, all those years ago, it, it's just a great, great story. Let's talk about your tenure at two big companies. You went in a different direction, working at one of the bellwether media companies in our space, still 
True Today at Univision, and also spent time at another great training ground for marketers and people in the whole brand and Marcom's world, Pepsi. Some great leaders that have come out of that company and their agencies, going back to you know Phil Dusenberry and and Alan Rosenshein and the, and the leadership at BBDO way back when. Uh, but talk about remembrances of those two, very different, but similarly high impact legacy brands in our business. Oh, absolutely. And what they had in common was the centricity of the consumer. So, so that is the one thing that both Univision and PepsiCo across all of the Pepsi brands still do very, very well. They understand that a business model works back from the end user and consumer and buyer. Um, and it is really a funnel that is backwards from that person's experience. The success of everything else that has to happen before that is really dependent on whether that consumer, and that could be the the Latin mom who's watching the 7 p.m. novelas on Univision, or it could be the um, skateboard fanatic that's a huge Mountain Dew drinker, whoever that person is, the success of that brand and that business starts with them having a successful and positive um, and authentic, and I know that word is overused, but but truly in a real relationship and connection to the brand. Everything else is secondary. And that is what PepsiCo to this day um, really understands and does brilliantly. And also um, I would I would say Univision. I mean, like really the, the, the amount of research and time and energy and investment that went into understanding the Hispanic consumer and the diversity within the Hispanic consumer, not just diversity of language, right? First generation, second generation, third generation, East Coast, West Coast, South American, Caribbean, women, men, uh, you know, high levels of education, low levels of education, kids, no kids. I mean, so much recent immigrants, not recent immigrants, so much diversity even within Hispanic and such a focus of understanding all of those segments, who who they were, what they operated like, what they wanted. And again, now it gets back to my earlier point. The next question is why? You know, why are these segments so different? What is driving the emotional profile of a person like Esther Mariah, right? Whose grandmother immigrated in, you know, in the 1950s to New York City and is like three generations in versus the emotional profile of, you know, my next door neighbor who just just got here 10 years ago and is, um, you know, is raising kids here that were born somewhere else. Really different set of experiences, different feelings, different different fears, you know, different anxieties, different motivators. And so that is the next wave of how this all works. But both Pepsi and Univision have an amazing track record of getting just about as deep as we could get at that time with understanding humans, human beings. Great, 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 Troy. I love that common resonance. So things seem to be going along pretty well for you. People are noticing you're a talented, you know, leader, and you end up at the company that we know is Odyssey, uh, then Entercom, uh, and starting to climb up the ladder up to SVP. So you're you're rising up the ladder. 
I did. I was there for the um, CBS radio intercom merger. I am a builder of things. I really started to hone in on really transformation work, I think at Univision um, and became laser focused on being part of uh, organizations that either wanted to do something different that they'd never done before, were broken and needed to be fixed, were launching new, starting from scratch, you know, really architecting things. I did it at Univision with the launch of Univision Deportes in the 2014 FIFA World Cup. And that was a brand new venture and that needed to be stood up from scratch in a really compressed amount of time. In the in the backdrop of a pending IPO, which ended up not happening, but was still very much like all of this transformation was trying to happen at the same time. Um, and then went from there to what was Entercom pre-CBS radio merger to be part of that transformational shift of taking what was Entercom to what then became the Entercom CBS radio combined entity. And then ultimately became again, um, Odyssey. And so we see still a lot of this focus on uh, the storytelling piece, the connectivity piece of, of all of this, and how two brands that at the time were quite different, CBS Radio and Entercom, had to come together to create a new version of Entercom, call it Entercom 2.0, that had this much more mass scale appeal to a broader set of audio media listeners. We launched podcasting in this interim with the uh, acquisition of Cadence 13 and, and then Pineapple Street Studios, um, which were fond memories of a lot of hard work and late nights. Uh, but what does this combined entity look like? Who is our new consumer, you know, how do we find the commonality between what was CBS radio, what was Entercom, what is this new company that we're building together? And how do we do it in a way that maintains the promise and the value proposition that we've made to listeners on either side of this story for the past 50 years? And so it was an absolutely fascinating case study in branding, in trans deep transformation work that started from really at the top and went touched every single part of the business down to like the signs on the door and people's business cards, which surprisingly hold a lot of emotional weight, you, you, you wouldn't think. Um, but again, the idea of the consumer centricity and giving people the thing that they want and providing the value that you said on the, at the beginning you were gonna provide remain the common thread. And so a really great, almost five years actually working over there with David Field and Weezy Kramer and then um, Susan Larkin and JD and, and so on. Um, and a, a really, and, and Ruth Gaviria and a really, really intense ride <laughs> that again pushed pushed all the limits of what we could do in a short amount of time to get this thing launched on the New York uh, Stock Exchange. So 
Yeah, great folks. I think we've had David and JD both on. Uh, yes, uh, those yeah, lines. those are some of my favorite and, uh, episodes. And my friend Monique <laughs> Nelson, who's on the board now at Odyssey. Mm-hmm. So, all right, uh, this is just so much fun. So you then moved to your first C-suite gig at Sound Exchange, and are now sitting in one of the corner offices, overseeing all marketing and communications for a pretty big player, uh, a, a transformation job in many respects. Uh, And that obviously led you to what we're going to talk about is the crescendo of our conversation here. Anywhere real estate, such an interesting company, uh, home to so many brands that we all know, the Anywhere real estate brand, less well known. So we're going to get there. But let's talk about that tenure at Sound Exchange and your gig as both CMO and CCO. Yeah, look, so Sound Exchange, I think, is is little known, very powerful company, little known to most the average consumer, unless you're an artist. Um, it is the single administrator of digital music royalties for non-interactive music. So whether you are Taylor Swift or you're Joe who has a band in his garage, if you have music that is streaming online um, in any non-interactive space, like SiriusXM, for example, would be a non-interactive um, streamer, and you are owed royalties for that for those streams. Sound Exchange is the exclusive administrator of those um, of those royalties, and and therefore maintains really really tight and important relationships with musical artists of all scales and size because it's a pretty significant stream of income, certainly for most working artists. And so I was brought on as uh, as the first really ever CMO um, in addition to CCO because the, the, the landscape of music is changing just like everything else, just like real estate, just like tobacco did, um, just like audio media and you know television at Univision and, and so on. And so I think the company realized there was a need to think differently about how and what it represented in the business and really moving out of being a utility player, uh, like a Con Edison, if you're a New Yorker, you know, that pay you, you pay your bills, you pay your electricity or whatever, and being becoming more of a commodity and an added value to the industry, particularly because if you can think about all the data that Sound Exchange, the infrastructure for this data that Sound Exchange built as the first ever kind of entity that administrate and ever administered digital music royalties when internet radio, and I put that in huge quotes, really became a thing at the turn of the century, all of the infrastructure around how that data moved around, like that that was a huge um, value, a huge kind of uh, opportunity to make the business of music, the business side of music, literally, more effective, more transparent, more simple. You know, music industry like media, and also we'll get to this, like real estate, extremely complex, extremely complex for the buyer, for the musician, for the homeowner. And a lot of these industries, I think, are realizing the name of the game for for people right now is simplicity. If you can't make things easier for me, I I don't want to do business with you. Like, so if, if you are not as a brand, as a company, really thinking about how do I simplify the experience for my consumer? 
how do I find a way to add additional value, uh, make their lives just easier, make the thing that I'm doing more transparent and easy to understand, approach, engage with, et cetera, like you're lost in the sauce, you know? And so that was one of the things that Sound Exchange was actively doing. And I was brought on and, you know, we, we, we did a complete rebrand of Sound Exchange to allow them to strategically reposition as more of a value player in the business of music tech, um, which is where where they are comfortably sitting sitting today. That was a that was a great ride. So you open the door. Let, let's walk through it. Give us the thirty thousand foot overview, Esther, of anywhere real estate because you sit on top of, beneath, around a lot of brands that we all know and love. Oh yeah. So um, Anywhere Real Estate is the largest residential real estate uh, company in the United States. So we are the home to several of the largest uh, brokerage brands that most people would recognize, including Coldwell Banker, Century 21, Better Homes and Gardens, um, ERA, Corcoran, Sotheby's International Realty. We're also in the business of title, of uh, insurance, of mortgage, of corporate relocation. So if you've ever been moved um, from one place to another by your business, you may have worked through Cardis, which is an anywhere company, to move you from you know market A to market B and get you you know placed there. So a really big organization, really at the front of all of the change and transformation and um, uh, evolution of what home buying and home selling looks like in the U.S., you know, today and into the future. And I was brought on as the company's first ever enterprise CMO, sitting horizontally across all of those businesses and brands that I mentioned to be part of the company's pretty massive transformation. We were, we were actually called Realogy up until March of last year. So in this move from Realogy to anywhere also came a strategic shift to um, think about how we make the process of home buying and, more, and home selling simpler for consumers, easier on agents and brokers with the smart use of technology and think about technology as an enabler of things, as opposed to a disruptor or a um, disintermediate of the way real estate has traditionally been, been operated. And I will tell you this one quick thing that was what made this really attractive to me as an opportunity, although on the surface, it was like, why would you go for media and entertainment? <laughs> you know, like Grammys and, and the Pepsi Super Bowl halftime show and Univision, Latina, and all of this to, to a house. But there's something really magical about being able to conclude this kind of transformation. Because if we are successful and I have every reason and every vote of confidence that we will be, in in digitally transforming not just the way we market but literally the way the process and the transaction flow goes for the average buyer and the seller think about all of the human beings across the us and all types of communities that would suddenly look at owning a home as a real possibility because i have the belief 
I'm definitely of the belief that a lot of people are gate kept out of home ownership simply because they don't know where to begin. It is so stressful. It is so kind of unclear. How much money do I need? Do I need to save up like hundreds of thousands of dollars? Can I even afford this? What can I afford? Can I get a loan? Do I qualify for a mortgage? Is this too much of a commitment? I'm, I'm, there's a lot of fear. If you look at some of the um, research, buying a home is on the list of top things, most stressful things that could happen in a person's life. Up there with terminal illness, divorce, death of a loved one. Like it shouldn't be on that list, right? So, so we have this opportunity to make that really, really different as part of this transformation. And so that is why I came on board and try to figure out how do we integrate technology and the consumer experience and how do we really transform the way we market to, to home buyers and home sellers to be more effective. Okay. So we, we could go in any number of directions off of that, but let's take the hardest one. We talked a lot about Washington Heights and that community where you grew up. One of the areas where the absence of a level playing field in America is most prevalent is the area of home ownership. And when you talk to people from the community, the Hispanic community, the black community, other newer immigrant communities, one of the areas where they are most challenged is getting access to financing and getting access to affordable housing, period. Talk about how your experience growing up is shaping how you approach the job across a family of bellwether brands that is a, sort of a who's who of the real estate industry in America. I love the way that you phrased that question. I will say all of that is true. And what is also true is that before we even get to the access piece, the very first thing that is the obstacle to communities of color, frankly, to most communities, is the, the need for transparency and education on the process. So folks don't even know where to begin. And we've seen that in a lot of the research. And you can't embark on an endeavor that you don't understand right and so so it is it is a complicated journey to even approach in the first place you have to have a certain level of confidence in your ability to navigate that process to take the risk because home buying is for most families the biggest financial investment and the biggest financial sort of anchor that they will ever make right and so there needs to be a pretty significant sense of confidence in that process and a sense of, I know what I'm about to get into. I know where to start. I know where to look. I know who to trust. That has, we, we, we see it in the research and the feedback from buyers and sellers. It's historically absent. It's just really confusing. Um, when I think about growing up in Washington Heights and when I think about people that I knew and interacted with and uh, saw and spoke to and engaged with in my community for all of those years, the disparity between, um, between folks based on, again, access to information was pretty striking. For a lot of people, I would say, the idea of ever owning a home was just not even on the table. It just was discarded as a possibility because 
again, lack of access to reliable and trustworthy information. And so if we can solve for that, and if we can solve for that in a way that is, you know, technology driven, that we can scale, um, we can put these tools in the hands of more people. It is my 100% belief that more people will then be willing to engage in the process of owning a home. And we know what that means in terms of generational wealth building. We, we've seen it in other communities over, you know, turns of generations, what having property passed down from one, one generation to the next means for that the future of that family. And so there are some pretty significant um, positive implications related to being successful in this transformation that that we are that we are trying to do. And I don't just mean it from the side of the buyer and the seller. I also mean it interestingly for agents and brokers. There's a disproportionate number of women that are real estate agents. It is a it is a business that a lot of mothers, you know, um, flock to because of the flexibility in the schedule because of make your own hours, because be your own boss and all of those things. If we can make even their job easier to do, help them be more successful, right? Then we're putting more money in the pockets of more families to feed their kids, to raise their families, to, to, buy, to buy a home, all those things. So th- there's really only upside in any which way that, that, that you look at this from, from like a social and cultural wellness perspective, which is what really, really interested me. And I want to start with at this, start thinking about this from the perspective of what are those anxieties? This is where the emography comes back in and the emographics come back in. We can't just profile people based on their age, sex, uh, uh, age, sex, location, income, and education. We can't profile them based on psychographics. There are deep sometimes cultural, sometimes childhood rooted emotional drivers that shape the attitudes of people towards making this kind of investment. We need to understand those with such level of precision and granularity so that we can segment appropriately and actually help people and maneuver through and navigate through this process in a way that's going to either solve their anxiety, meet their aspirational spirit, you know, focus on their enthusiasm, whatever their driver or drivers may may be. And that's the work that we're doing. Um, certainly the enterprise marketing team is doing it at Anywhere, which is exciting. I'm excited about it. It's a great story. And you've really given us a, a, a full circle definition of transformation and what that means. It's internal, it's external. It's It's got uh, a lot of humanity in the story as to you and your story, Esther. And I can't thank you enough for doing this. This was so much fun. Well, thank you for having me. This was a great way to spend my afternoon. Thank you for having me on. You got it.